one of the biggest lies of capitalism then is to make us believe it's our fault. Hi, what's our intro? Uh, who are well, we? Welcome to the Feminist, feminist, feminist <laughs> Present, uh, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what happened last night. Laura. Oh my God. Oh my God. Okay, so I wish I had audio to share of this, but the event was not streamed or recording, I'm assuming per the contract that was agreed upon. But I got asked very last minute, like with 48 hours notice to read her new book, to interview Roxanne Gay, that Roxanne Gay, like the Dr. Roxanne Gay, for a student group at Stanford. And so, 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 I have not composed myself. Okay, so a little bit of backdrop here. I have been connected with Roxanne on Twitter since, I don't know, something like 2010. I was telling her last night that I think she was one of the first hundred people I followed on Twitter when I joined in like 2008. In 2012, I ran a large Kickstarter for an independent film that I was making at the time. Lo and behold, in 2012, Roxanne Gay, that Roxanne Gay, donated $50 to my Kickstarter for this Mm. film for someone she had only ever interacted with on Twitter, like barely interacted with on Twitter. So when the student group last night asked me to, they asked me for like a little bio that they could use for their introductions. So I sent a bio that said something like, Laura Good does this at Stanford. Her public-facing work includes blah, 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 and a film called Farrah Goes Bang, for which Roxanne Gay donated to the Kickstarter in 2012, which Laura will never, ever forget. At the moment the students read this intro, I am standing backstage with Roxanne Gay, who is, like, the most gorgeously tall person. Like, I just love meeting a woman that, like, I can make eye contact with as a six-foot bitch. So as the student is reading the intro and the Farrah Goes Bang part, Roxanne Gay turns to me and she goes, wait, you wrote Fair Goes Bang? And I pooped my pants in front of a live audience. And I said, yeah, you saw Fair Goes Bang? And she goes, yeah, that was a great fucking movie. In front of a live audience. <laughs> so I, Adrian, I was like flailing, sweating, screaming, like I died and you are recording this with a ghost is basically what happened. So I interviewed Roxanne Gay and she is the greatest living human is my summary of the feminist present. This is, uh, yeah. So this is what's going on right now. Uh, yes. Uh, literally Laura, right Laura now. Yes. Is, is floating. Uh, this is a seance. I'm in the biggest perioxyism since the Cheryl Strait interview. Yeah. Long time listeners will remember. Global uh, call. The, a, a near <laughs> ethereal Laura walking her way, like wafting her way through that interview. <laughs> I was going to say this connects gracefully to the guest that we are speaking to in this episode. So if we were drawing a genealogy of feminist media, we would connect Roxanne Gay to Nicole Chung via, I believe Nicole was one of the editors for Roxanne's website, The Butter, and or Roxanne did some writing for The Toast. Does that seem accurate for you? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, they're definitely connected in my mind. Kindred spirit. In a way that people in the feminist um, publishing sphere tend to be connected, right? That you're like, yes. I, I know there's a connection there, but I can't tell you which one of the frequently defunct websites it's through, oh right? God. Um, yes. Which, like, now unfortunately includes Jezebel. I was just thinking that. Yes. But uh, they yes. made it longer than, than most, I suppose. Way, way longer. Anyway, today we're sharing with you a conversation we had with Nicole Chung 
longtime friend of the pod. Yes, and friend of the Clayman Institute. That's true, uh, but a first-time guest on the pod, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Which is like, it feels, frankly, like hugely careless on our part. We fucked up. It feels like she's been here all, all along. We've done events with her. I guess they just weren't recorded. This isn't the before time. I was trying to remember. Yeah, that event that she did at Clayman, was that for her first book? That event that she did in like 2019? Yeah, uh, I, I interviewed her for All You Can Ever Know, right. which was a book that came out in... 2019 in the before time, time, uh, before it all went to shit, which is absolutely amazing and brilliant. And if people haven't read it, they really need to. Justifiably a bestseller. Yeah, justifiably bestseller. But this was about her next book, which in some way is about what happened in the interim, which was Mm -hmm. that, you know, the, the pandemic intervened. Nicole lost both her parents during that time. And also just didn't write that much, she says. It's a miracle she wrote at all, yes. Well, no, but then she always is this kind of person that like everything she writes is so searing and incisive that yeah. basically I was like, I feel like you're lowballing it. But for her, right, I mean, the writer has a good sense of their own productivity and how they feel. And clearly it was kind of a lull for her. And yeah. when a writer says, I didn't write for half a year, what that means, I think it can mean a whole range of things, right? It can mean like, it didn't gel together. It could mean I was literally staring at a blank Word document. We didn't ask her what this was, but like, but she also seems to feel like she wasn't quite as present as she had been before. She was an editor at Catapult, and at some point, they stopped doing essays. I forget exactly when that happened. I'm guessing that is a big change, right? Like handling mm-hmm. other people's writing, including my writing, and mine. on a day to day versus just like not doing that. Like, yeah. so like there were changes in her life, and this book is really a beautiful reflection on, yeah, on the grieving process, on the process of the writer's life in a in a yeah. time of mourning. A really, really incredible book different from all you can ever know which has kind of a top line topic which is you know nicole reconnecting with her about her adoption and her birth family and thinking about what exactly that meant about her identity about identity as such etc etc living remedy is surprising in what it's about what it winds up being about and you almost can sort of sense a really brilliant essayist kind of working her way to what it's about. Uh, And that's part of what's exciting Mm -hmm. about it, that it ends up being kind of about COVID, ends up being about class, it ends up being about identity, ends up being about children in ways that are like not obvious on page 10. So I definitely recommend it to people. I also recommend it to people to take your time with it. It isn't a book where you know how you're going to feel on page 100 when you crack it open. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of amazing. And it's, it's beautiful. And I love talking to her about it. I like the way you said that. I was thinking that I love a memoir that to a certain degree picks up where the first memoir left off. You know, they're not contiguous stories, but for fans of Nicole Chung's first book, you will definitely find a lot to be rewarded by in the second. I love what you said. I think that Nicole has a real talent for plumbing poignant family stories for really searing social criticism. Yeah which she trained on the issue of adoption in her first book and now really trains on the issue of healthcare in her second book. And she justifiably sees, especially her father's death as very preventable, you know, and and the death of someone who simply did not have access to the resources he needed to survive and thrive, which is the reality of millions of Americans in our broken, stolen country. So I just, I feel so much admiration for the grace with which Nicole can stitch together 
the personal and the political, to use a little bit of a feminist buzzword. Uh, a little bit of a throwback, yes. Yeah, I love this book. I, yeah, big recommendation and absolutely in our wheelhouse. If you like this podcast, you're going to love this book. I, I think it's as simple as totally. it is, right? Like we sometimes, we sometimes host writers who are you know, a little offbeat for us. This is on beat. This is our shit. This is extremely our shit. She's deep. She's on the two and the four. Yeah. Nicole's, the, the combination of family story and social criticism reminds me a little bit of Sarah Smarsh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So on, on other Netflix recommendations, if you like Nicole Chung's work, you will probably also like Sarah Smarsh's work and our interview with her. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So we're gearing up for, I mean, this is my last commitment before the week-long break that Stanford gets for Thanksgiving slash Indigenous Peoples Day. And what are you going to be doing? What do you do for Thanksgiving or Indigenous Peoples Day? What are your holiday plans? We're having a turkey in Napa. Okay. We're okay. Going with a couple of friends. Yeah, it's nice. Fancy. First, my first time out in like, Schmancy. In like six I months. I like it. And then, I mean, pretty shortly after that, I have to head to Europe to give a bunch of talks and get hmm. yelled at about cancel culture. So like, yeah, that'll be fun. One of your favorite pastimes. It's just the best. Yeah. <laughs> in multiple languages. Well, yeah, yeah exactly. They have a lot of opinions and I'm going to hear about them. All right. Um, but whatever. I wrote, a, I wrote a book about it. So like, I, I'm not, you sure did. can't really complain about it. I mean, you can. It turns out people, people do not take, you know, kindly to being told that the thing that they've spent like months freaking out about is not real. So, or years about is not real. But, you know, we'll try again. They don't? No. You're kidding. (laughs) Do you have any Thanksgiving dishes like in the cuisine of the holiday that you look forward to? I always like making Brussels sprouts. I have a Brussels sprout recipe that I always break out and I I do kind of love them. Um, When they're nice and crispy on the oven. I love a Brussels sprout. There was this great moment in the Roxanne interview last night where we were talking about the sort of early 2000s blog period where very successful bloggers were getting really big book deals. Yeah. And, you know, because we were talking to so many Gen Z people, we were trying to be specific and come up with examples. And we got to talking about Smitten Kitchen oh, being shit, one of those yeah. books that got big. Oh, God, that throws me back. Yeah. And Roxanne and I were both cavelling about Smitten Kitchen's schmaltzy chicken over cabbage, which I have made you. I have made you mm-hmm. that. I remember bringing that when River was yeah, born. Yeah. Anyway, Roxanne is also a fan of schmaltzy cabbage, and I really enjoyed that. It's great. That. I mean, that's a great dish. Yeah. It was. It was just really funny to see that, like, really catch in conversation about, like, Oh yeah, the schmaltzy cat. Let's talk about the schmaltzy cabbage. <laughs> yeah, and a, b- a bunch of Gen Z kids who are like, I don't cook for myself. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> we're like, yeah, you'll, you'll get there. Go, you'll get there. Yeah. Go cook a bunch of cabbage in your dorm kitchen. That's a great way to get popular with your friends <laughs> nearby. Well, on that schmaltzy note, let's uh, go to a very non-schmaltzy conversation. Schmaltzy is a word we should just be using and, and yeah, all the time, all more. the time. Yes. Okay. Uh, with the wonderful Nicole Chung. The one and only Nicole Chung. We're so grateful for her coming. We are so thankful to you for listening. And we hope you enjoy this talk about Nicole's new-ish book, A Living Remedy. Enjoy. My weekend was both made wonderful and very, very sad by by this book. It's it's such a powerful book. I reread it and I thought I was a little bit more prepared for what was coming and and I absolutely was not. And it's really, it's a a testament to your writing. There's this kind of controlled 
fury to the grieving process outlined in this book that I just, it just takes your breath away. It's a beautiful book, but I also think it's good that it's 250 pages because it otherwise it really packs an enormous punch. And so one thing I thought we could start off with, it's such a specific story you tell, but at the same time, it is it, it does feel very universal to me. And I, I thought I'd ask mm-hmm. about the universal first, like fully understanding that this is in some ways a very specific story that you're trying to tell. But there is something like very triggering about this book for folks who are watching their parents age. And it's this kind of chronicle of the process of saying goodbye or not getting to say goodbye, of grieving, of grieving uh, while parenting, while sort of li- still living your life and kind of, you know, moving forward. But especially in the first 100 pages or so, it's really more about the chronicle of the force shocks and the kind of mounting sense of dread that begins to creep into our relationship with our parents, even under the best of circumstances, and that eventually sort of becomes the relationship with our parents. And I was wondering, how were you able to excavate that again, given that you wrote it after those foreshocks had become kind of, you know, your reality? How how did you sort of excavate that anxiety so well? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you just mentioned the anxiety, because I think it was like in the process of writing this book during a pandemic, I should say, like while parenting two kids and trying to kind of work full time. And at the beginning of the pandemic, at least like be there for my mom as much as possible and support her while she was dying. I mean, it was during all of this that I I had to become like much more intimately acquainted with what my anxiety was and and how it manifested in my life and the sources. In a way, I feel foolish to say it's not something I was super conscious of before. And then when my mom was sick, I started having these panic attacks, uh, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. on the phone with doctors. The challenge is like learning how to recognize those moments and kind of keep it together as you say, like through a series of shocks over which I had like no real control. And as for like writing this book in the midst of that and like so soon afterward, I don't know, honestly, I think some of it was just, I didn't write for a very long time. I mean, after, after my mother passed in particular, I probably, not only did I put this book down, I wasn't really writing anything creative for like many, many months. I had no idea if I could or would Mm -hmm. ever get back to this story because the story I'd set out to tell largely about my grief for my father and a lot of the, you know, systemic inequalities and structural failings that I believe uh, sped his death. You know, I didn't expect things to change so drastically. I wasn't expecting I'd ever have to write a book about losing both of them. I think I really wanted to write it in part because Mm -hmm. I just knew so many people going through similar circumstances, whether it was struggling while maybe in the sandwich generation to care for parents or elders and care for children, um, or trying to meet a crisis without the support and resources, financial and otherwise, that you need to meet a crisis in your family, or who are going through, as you mentioned, Adrian, like those that changing relationship with your parents, uh, having this slow growing awareness that things are different now, you are stepping into a caregiving role you and they may not be ready for. And then people, of course, like experiencing all types of losses and disappointments during the pandemic, you know, finding our lives upended and our priorities reshuffled because of that. I knew so many people in my life and I knew so many people out there beyond, you know, my acquaintance must be going through similar things. And I think one reason, not the only reason, but one reason I kept thinking about maybe coming back to this story if I could was if this book could be a companion to those people. It wasn't even as ambitious as like, I'm sure it's going to help because I know so so well what it's like to be in those circumstances and, and feel there isn't a way 
for people to help. But I, I wanted to sort of keep them company and say, this is me too. And this is not our fault. And ultimately we're all doing our best in like rigged systems. We're not responsible for these structural failings. You know, it's kind of a long winded way of answering your question, but I think I wrote it kind of to feel less alone and in the hope other people going through similar things would feel less alone. Yeah. I mean, there are there are moments in the book that are absolutely like, you know, really are a gut punch in terms of recognition. I mean, like the the scanning of parents as you're arriving at the airport. I'm like, yep, uh, I don't know when I started doing that, but I have definitely started doing that. And it's just this. Yeah. And, and it creeps up on you and the meaning of it really becomes clear only in retrospect. And it's this, this really sickening realization what's going on. I have to tell you, this is personal, Nicole, but I have to tell you, like over the course of the maybe two weeks I was reading this book, including this weekend, my mother, who's 80, discovered she's had a lot of mobility problems in the last two years. They discovered in an MRI that she has a hairline fracture in her hip bone that almost broke all the way through and had to have an emergency uh, hip replacement, like as I was reading this book. (laughs) I'm sorry. I it's hope she's totally, doing better. Thank you. She is. She's doing fine. She has insurance too, you know, and like this draws that into really, really sharp relief. But just to be living the reality of like an aging parent as I was reading this book was just meta in a really powerful way. And and I also think, you know, Nicole, like we are two people who have followed your career for a long time. Your books, your career at Catapult, your career at The Butter and the Toast, your tweets, your social media presence, like all of it. And so definitely I knew some of the plot points of this book already. Like I knew that you had lost both of your parents in a really short amount of time. I knew that you had lost your mother during the pandemic and hadn't been able to go visit her in this like really gut-wrenching way. But I also really appreciated, I'm stringing together a couple of thoughts. You have a really searing and precise financial candor in this book that I think is a beautiful act of just like class rebellion in the best way. And I have also thought of you as someone who's been really successful in the in literature and the humanities. You know, I think many people think of you that way. I think you are that way. And to be then confronted with this incredibly detailed portrait of, I just have to read the line because it has not left me. You will learn to live with the specific hollow guilt of those who leave hardship behind yet are unable to bring anyone else with them. Like that is such a profound comment on the state of the humanities. It's such a profound comment on the reality of a college degree's value. I'm trying to work up to a question and I'm just coming into like a buffet, but like, could you talk a little bit about the decision process of the truths that you tell about money in this book specifically? Yeah, maybe it makes sense to start by saying I was really terrified to go there and had not really previously in my career as a writer. It's interesting, like close readers of the book might notice, like I never really come out and say we were poor or or even that my parents were, you know, and, and in so many ways, the story of my father in particular and his loss is the story of what it means to grow older, to be sick and to be poor in this country. And yet, like so many times when I try to write, especially about like my own experience growing up, like there was no question that we were really struggling and that the extent of that. I wasn't really aware of it at the time because in other ways I was so privileged. Like I was so loved and so sheltered. One of the things I write about, I found a way to, to get at it instead, which was just to say, I remember finding like my FAFSA, like my 
my application for, for federal student aid before college. And at the time, the numbers would have meant nothing to me, of course. But like looking back, like our household income, all of us, like what we all made together in a year was something like a little more than half of what my freshman year of college would cost. Mm. It was somewhere, I'm going to blank on the exact number, but like twenty four, twenty five thousand dollars $25,000 for a family of three. And that is why I got so much financial aid, you know, but I, I just remember feeling like maybe the details are more important than like labels or how I identified or how my parents identified. Oh my God, the, the gap peacoat, the gap <laughs> peacoat, Nicole, is such an important detail. Like I'm agreeing with you. Sorry That's to interrupt okay. you, but like, yes to the details. I, please, please continue. It was just really, there was no way to tell this story without being transparent about some of those details. And I figured like more than statistics or numbers that might not mean anything, especially given that this was like 25 years ago or whatever. I could just kind of share details of what it was like to be growing up in that household without a strong awareness, really, of what my parents were facing, because again, I was so sheltered. And at the same time, becoming aware that we were really struggling, that I was like working part time and paying for things that my peers, you know, weren't working or paying for, Um, that everyone told me I'd go to college, but none of us really knew how, you know, and certainly my family had no money to send me how I didn't know I actually would be going until I started getting not acceptances, but financial aid offers that like that was truly the determining factor. And then just kind of a growing class and money awareness as I went off to college and started meeting people from like, you know, a wider variety of backgrounds. And it was just, I think many of us can relate to not really having these things made explicit to us, right? By parents, by other people, certainly not by peers, you know, it's not, these are not things I think that They're not specifics of our lives that a lot of people are comfortable drawing explicit attention to. And so we are left, especially as young people, to try to make sense of it all and try to glean based on what's not being said out loud, you know, picking up on social cues and just what we can observe to figure out like our place in the world and our family's place in the world. I think it was really important in the story, too, to just show honestly, like how ignorant I was of a lot of this and then how some of the assumptions I had and the belief I'd been raised with that like, oh, if you just work hard enough, long enough, you'll be able to take care of yourself and everybody you care about. And the reality is, of course, not that. The reality is that many of us don't have enough time or we just don't make enough or the choices we make, we don't, we can't see the future. We don't really know what the needs of our families and loved ones will be. And The reason it was important to include in the story, apart from the fact that I do think it's important to be transparent about money, especially in a story like this, is just it ruled so much of like what I was able to do, what options my parents had. And there was really no facing my grief for my father or what happened to him without facing like the reality of what he was up against as someone who was uninsured, um, who had a condition that would have been treatable with access to health care. As someone who like the damage was done because he didn't have that access. And then like by the time he was granted sort of a crisis response to that in the form of like Medicaid and disability, um, it was basically too late to really save him. It's such a common, I write this in the book, but it is such a common American story. And there's this tendency, I know we have it to blame ourselves or blame each other uh, when these things happen. And so it has been an important part of my own grieving process to recognize I may always have regrets, but that's not the same thing as guilt. And it's Mm. not the same thing as it being my fault. And it was interesting to me, too. My mother and I were so far apart politically, ideologically in many ways. But this was something we were united on. And it kind of surprised me in the weeks 
after we lost my dad, but like neither one of us believed his death at 67 was inevitable. And, you know, she and I both talked about different points at which the safety net really didn't catch him. And so I don't know, it was something I had not seen grappled with in a lot of stories about grief. And it kind of surprised me, given how many people I know in this country have faced similar circumstances. So that was something, another reason it just felt important to include. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's in some way, it, it is about the way that these kind of almost universal feelings of, of grieving and of loss of the aging process, et cetera, et cetera, are so shot through with all these factors beyond our control and really historically conditioned, right? I mean, like, that, that's what makes this, I think, such a great memoir, that that you almost move imperceptibly from these things that I think that I, for one, really could relate to. And then these very specific observations. It's, you know, this is a, a working class story. It's a story about growing up in, in Oregon very, very clearly. Your own positionality, right, where there's a the moment where a college professor asks you, have you ever wondered why Oregon is so white? And you're like, I had not, <laughs> right? And like there's this, just, right? Like everything about being able to return or not being able to return, all these chasms that open up are about this little thing that, like, mm -hmm. basically, um, yeah, you had just experienced as as your reality. It's also, of course, kind of a post Reagan story about you know the way credit cards start taking over for health mm. insurance, right? I think that's that's really fascinating. But also, they're, they're like your parents' kind of libertarianism that they almost. They they're also kind of ideologically opposed to to uh, seeking some kinds of help uh, or thinking it's not for them, which I think is really interesting. There's, you write this about no longer lived paycheck to paycheck, but emergency to emergency. What had seemed like stability proved to be a flimsy, shallow facsimile of it. And I think that that's that's a historic transformation, right? You mentioned that your grandmother, for instance, did have care for the same disease, right? Um, mm -hmm, yeah. And I think I think that's just so so amazing the way. Um, it really is this kind of American panorama of, and it couldn't have happened any other time. And at the same time, it gets at all these extremely uh, universal things. But what it also does, and I wanted to ask you about this, is it, it really has your parents come alive as people, right? Which is like, that's always a tricky thing, right? Like, you know, we, we know the kinds of memoirs that are about the distance that one can travel from home, especially if that distance takes one from let's say, a slightly smaller town to, you know, a fancy East Coast school and then later to several fancy East Coast cities, right? Like, we know how to tell that story so that everyone just stands in for their roles. That's not what your parents are doing in this book either. And I'm wondering, how did you, were there things that you kind of looked at and were like, the, the, I can't tell it that way. It's going to just be slotted into this thing. And that's that's disrespectful to my parents' story. Or or did, did you just write it as it came and and, you know, you just happen to be, let's say, uh, a more more reflective thinker than, <laughs> let's say, J.D. Vance or something like that. <laughs> I don't know how to respond. Any, any, to that. Anyone, anyone is. Yeah. Everyone <laughs> is. That's true. Yeah, good point. I'm like, a, I'm like, is that the bar? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Here, more perceptive than J.D. Vance. Yeah, hear, hearing time. myself say that now, I'm like, well, yeah, that, that, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I mean, thank you. I think uh, I. Oh, gosh. So I'm one of the challenges, but also one of the joys of just this genre is trying to figure out how to turn the people in your life, people you love into essentially characters, like hopefully not to flatten them or and to like avoid the trap, as you're saying, of like one dimensionality or just not really allowing them to feel like full people or to set up straw men or stereotypes or, or what have you. I will say it was fairly easy for me to avoid that because, you know, I hear my parents' voices all the time like in so many ways, like all I have to do is just think about it. And I can, 
I can think about like what they would say and how they would say it. And I know the very complicated people they were and, and the complicated relationship that we had. Certainly, I don't idealize it. There were many things that like were very hard for us to talk about. There were gaps that were very hard to bridge. Like it was not difficult at all to like reach for and find and remember and write about like their love for me and their faith in me and their trust of my decisions, even ones they wouldn't have made. One key moment, I guess, for me in writing was recognizing that like unlike some some people, I, I really think that like their love and their approval was not based on me following a prescribed path they had for me or turning out just like them or sharing all of their opinions. Like, which is not to say we didn't argue when our opinions differed or that we all felt good, you know, good about that. But it, it just like underlying all of their, like their whole approach to parenting, to being my parents was this trust and this faith. Like when they said you always Mm -hmm. end up making the decision that's right for you, they meant that. I mean, they even meant that in many ways when I made decisions they didn't agree with. And so it was just truthful to portray that. It would have been unfair to them not to. And like, they were just also like, I mean, they could be very fun people. It was really important to me to show who they were too before they got sick and before things got harder. Because Mm -hmm. ultimately, of course, who thinks of their family story or their parents' story as like like an American tragedy? That's not how I think of them. It's not how they thought of themselves. You know, I think of their life together and our life, my life as their child. and it's characterized by like love and complication and struggle and resistance and hope. And I hate it when people like praise the term resilience, but they truly were like, I can just say objectively, extremely resilient people. And so I hope all that adds up to a portrayal that it doesn't feel one dimensional, that doesn't feel like a stereotype. And I know many, many people too, who are in the same position of like being related to and loving people who are very different from them. Yeah. And that was like another important thing I thought to to include in the story. It doesn't mean the differences of opinion don't matter, you know, and it doesn't mean it doesn't mean I didn't try to like argue. <laughs> um, but they were right about the fact that it was really like their love and their trust that mattered more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was their love and trust that allowed me to argue and question and become my own person with differing opinions and a different life path like they're the ones who set me up to make those choices they they're the ones who gave me that option yeah there's there's this amazing line that i really love with uh you know sometimes i wonder if being their child a product of their choices and their faith if not their genes is what made me believe that another life might be within my reach that to me i i underlined a lot of lines in this book i underlined this like five times because it's this really kind of heartbreaking portrait of two amazing people who got exactly what they wanted for their kid, right? This is this is what they gave you and were also clearly hurt in the process, like as was inevitable, right? Like uh, if, if, you, if you give your kid the sense like you cannot disappoint us or you have to find your own path and we're proud of you for that, they, that will hurt at some point. And it's just like that, that to me, yeah, it, it was just, and knowing that that would basically take you probably pretty far away from them uh it's it's just it it was incredibly moving and it comes through extremely clearly i agree the portrait of your parents felt so multi-dimensional to me and what's coming up for me right now are two different lines and a word one of the lines is from you nicole i couldn't even tell you what essay this was years ago but i remember you wrote an essay i believe in which you mentioned that your mother had made a political call that was atypical of her to perhaps advocate for something related. I can't remember for what the advocacy was. 
And I just remember the last line of the essay was, she must have called for me. And uh, like, it was your realization that your mother would never have done this of her own volition. It was out of her love for you and her concern for your future that she did something that was out of character for her. The second line I'm thinking of is something I think about all the time, which is, I went to graduate school with the daughter of a famous writer who was herself working on a memoir about a troubled childhood. And I believe her mother was still living and her father was not still living. And she ran some stuff by her mother about the book. And her mother had the single best line about memoir I've ever heard, which was write whatever you want. Just make it clear that you loved me. I, I can't even imagine the spiritual generosity it would take to utter that line to your writer child. But generosity is what comes through both in in the way you portray your parents and the information that you convey about the way they treated you. I am so stuck on the beauty of the care packages that your mom sent you, you know, like, and I loved your itemized list of what was in every package just because there was so much care in those details, just such pure love and attention. So again, I don't know what question I'm working up towards, but the generosity of your parents came through so strongly in your portrayal of them. And it also opens on to your career. You know, like I can see the imprints of that in how generous you are as an editor and as a mentor and as a literary citizen and advocate. So I guess I just, I would love to hear in your words, how does your career come from them, even though they weren't literary people, capital L, capital P? First of all, I guess the the belief they always had that I made the right decisions for myself. And by the way, this is not a belief I share. Like, I think it's impossible <laughs> to feel, to feel that controversial one... belief. Right. Oh, I have so many times in publishing, like I've, I've just sat there and questioned like every professional decision I've ever made leading me to a certain point. I mean, I still do that, but they, they really so did. They had so much... Yes. Right. They had so much faith. And I think they, like, it never occurred to them to tell me not to major and like the humanities or, you know, not to go back to grad school for writing, which I did when my kids were like nine months old and three years old. Like it was the worst possible time, but they really, I wrote this in the book too. And it's true. Like they couldn't imagine a life for me where I didn't pursue everything I wanted, which is kind of an incredible act of faith, given how many things had not worked out the way they wanted them to, or the way they thought they would, but they just like, couldn't picture me not making this work, which again, there are so many points at which I thought it wouldn't. When I think too about like, just the years I spent working like low paying publishing jobs that I loved. I mean, it was such a privilege to get to work with writers like you all and to publish your work. And at the same time, and I got explicit about this, like in a piece I wrote for Esquire around the time A Living Remedy came out, but like, there were so many times when I made so little money at it that I didn't blame my parents for sometimes assuming it was my hobby like, or just for not understanding that part of my career. And I remember at the time thinking like, I just wished I could do more for them, especially as my father's health really started to decline. You know, I was a grad student and then I was an entry level like editor. My husband was a postdoc, just feeling like, oh, I thought I would have more time like before they needed help. And like, what I guess what I'm getting to is like, I still feel Again, that distinction between regret and guilt, like you can know something's not your fault or that you made the best decisions you could in the moment, but still wish that you'd known more or been able to do more. And I'll always wish I could have done more, particularly for my father. And I'll always wish that like we just had more time, like that I had realized, you know, kind of what he and my mom would need. 
you know, at an earlier point, I might have made really different decisions. I don't know that I'd be doing what I do now if I had known what they would need. Um, and that's just kind of like a reality I live with, you know? Yeah. I just think that's such like what you were just talking about seems to me to be such an important part of the truth that this book is telling about like, what does a successful literary career look like? I'm putting successful in scare quotes. Cause like, what is success? What does it mean? Measure it. Yeah. Right. What does it mean? But I think an objective observer could look at like your list of bylines, Nicole Chung, and be like, here's a person who has been an editor at multiple prestigious publications, you know, low paying, yes, but like also prestigious and well known. I believe the toast is in the Library of Congress now, you know, like you've had a book that you've published two books, one of which was a bestseller, you know, so I think to me, part of the the courage of the truth that you're telling is that you're revealing like, look, even really significant success in this line of work does not make you a billionaire who can change the class outcome for your entire family. And mm. I think that's an important thing for the student. I mean, I'm always thinking from like a student perspective, but like, I think that's an important truth to be telling the students. And I have also had that feeling that you just named of like, man, if I had known every financial reality of the implications of this, I don't know that I would have tacked on that creative writing minor, you know, probably I think mm. I would have, but just as an anecdote, something funny that happened to me recently. So I live in a two bedroom apartment in San Francisco, like one of the most expensive rental markets in the country. For the last couple of months, I have been hearing someone playing an oboe who is incredible, like obviously not a seventh grader, someone who is just like un like the most beautiful mystical oboe music coming through my vents. So I did like a couple lines of stalking based on like packages in the mailroom and who I thought it was. <laughs> and I discovered that the person playing the oboe is like the principal oboist in a major orchestra in the Bay Area, like probably one of the five best performers in her field. And I was looking around at my like nice, but like not large two bedroom apartment and being like, classical musicians that talented should be living in mansions and this is the world and this is san francisco so they're not so anyway there was something there was a bit about your book that was like the oboe through the vents to me of like the truth telling Another great virtue of this memoir as a memoir seems to me that that you're caught in the same capitalist system as the people you're describing, right? That like that, that, that the emergence of this book is sort of implicated in the exact same processes that bring about, you know, as you say, the the outcomes that that you chronicle in it, right? That they would have certainly had more time if things had been different, if care had been different. There's never a remove that there's like you 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 on the one hand. There's a really heartbreaking little chapter where you and your husband go go back to your your childhood home and and it's this kind of very powerful and recognizable kind of story about how you can't really go home again. But on the other hand, it's also about how you can't really leave. How the how the uh, even the telling of the story is conditioned by the same societal forces that very much that, that that the book's about, which I think is so wonderful because it is easy to kind of get yourself into this kind of Olympian remove and kind of say like, I'm now telling you what it was like. And it's like, no, it is still like that. It's still 
this is still ongoing. And I think, and that, that's really the the feeling one gets from this book that, that not, not that you're still working through it. It's like, you're never going to be done working through it because it is yeah. the same place from which this book emerges. Yeah. I'm sorry. I wasn't sure like how to respond to that. So I'm just nodding. Um, yeah. no, I mean, one of the themes of the book is certainly like leave taking, um, leave takings of all kinds. Mm. And like, it's interesting. I thought I was partly setting out to write a book about like reconciling that distance between me and home and certainly between like what I wanted to be able to do for my family and what was ultimately possible. Right. But yeah, then as, as you're saying, Adrian, I think at a certain point I realized, well, part of me like never really left. It eventually stopped being something I needed. I mean, I write pretty frankly about like dreaming of escape. I was the only Korean I knew in my town. I didn't really meet or know any others till college. So like that state of racial isolation, total racial isolation was a very strange place to be raised in. And I always did think about leaving, but it was only after leaving that I, and coming back that I realized like, I mean, this place is always going to be a part of me. Mm. And in some ways, like I welcome that and even treasure that it's, there are times when I wonder like, like, would I be a storyteller or would I be doing what I'm doing? Or maybe what you were saying what I have kind of the same outlook on life that I would have if I hadn't been like a product of this place, you know, a- mm-hmm. as well as these people, you know, and it's, it's, it's very hard to think about that and think about things turning out differently. This is the life I know. Right. And I'm very grateful for it. Yeah. And I do recognize too, just the class and educational privilege and other privilege that I've attained. And, and yet, you know, as we're talking about for me and for so many people, it was not enough to really help my family. Like, when they needed it in the specific ways they needed it because because of the systems we live under and one of the biggest lies of capitalism then is to make us believe it's our fault you know make us believe that we should be experts at navigating these systems that were never really set up to serve or help us and you know the systems that also make it harder to grieve our losses to recognize them and to acknowledge them which is which is another major theme of the book yeah i guess that makes me think of I would love to hear your perspective, Nicole, on like what the packaging, writing, and selling process of this book was. Because you mentioned that you wrote it in really deep grief, you know, that there were times that you set it down and didn't know if you were going Mm -hmm. to return. This is such vulnerable subject matter. You had been through so much in the pandemic. Like, take us through the beats of like, what was it to sell this book and how did it feel? Yeah. So to be clear, I had actually sold this book before it was this book. I had intended to write a story about the experience of losing my dad and how and when and why we lost him. That was grappling with all the things that really do show up throughout the book that we've been talking about, like living under capitalism and the just the reality of what it means to be sick in this country without great wealth or without insurance. Right. And not that I set out to write like a polemical story, but I really felt the facts of what happened to my father, what happens to so many people. I mean, the facts are damning enough. I hadn't seen a lot of grief stories that really reckoned with this. And like I said before, that surprised me because I know these are common circumstances, Absolutely. tragically common. And honestly, I wanted to write it because it was part of my grieving was like learning how to grieve without this like, self-recrimination without this guilt, without like punishing myself. And so that was the story I set out thinking I would write. And then my mother was diagnosed with terminal cancer when I had just like barely started it. And when I say I put the book down, it wasn't just like in the months after she died. I mean, there were many months leading up, like when she was sick, I just couldn't 
like when her cancer came back, it was so fast. I couldn't really write or, or be thinking about writing. I didn't know, did not tell my publisher this in so many words, but like, I, I didn't really know if I'd never imagined trying to write a book about losing both of them. And it was like not a reality I could face yet, let alone like putting that into words. So I basically just didn't put much pressure on myself to write at all um, or to think about the book going through the events. Like I was trying to just be a human being, be a daughter, be a mother, be a person alive during the pandemic. My mom started hospice care right as the pandemic was beginning. So, I mean, it was all happening at once. And I wish I could say like more clearly what it was that drew me back, because I think it is just that I am a writer. As badly as I felt I was doing at the time, I do so much worse when I'm not writing. And there were so many things I didn't want to forget. So I would Mm. write little things down, like something my mother said to me, like some of our last conversations or just um, like the dark jokes she would make. She was so funny (laughs) in ways I like did not fully appreciate even at the time. But looking back, I'm like, God, you're hilarious about this. Like when she tells me, you know, we had not yet gotten a headstone for my father's grave. And she's like, well, if you wait long enough, you can get one for both of us. Like that was my mother's sense of <laughs> wow. humor. Yes, Efficiency. I know. Uh, Efficiency. That's what yeah. I'm saying. <laughs> there were like just things I didn't, I don't know. It, I think then at, at a certain point, spending time with those memories became like, memory to me is like the most active part of grief, right? It's the part that is mm. the most comforting. So I mm. wouldn't say I approached writing again with like this cathartic or therapeutic mentality. I'm not one of those people who finds writing especially therapeutic, but spending time with those memories and then like trying to conjure my parents, like everything about them, the way they looked and sounded like on the page, there was something that was very meaningful in that for me. And also writing, writing was time for me at a time in my life when that was really hard to find. And so when I did have the chance to write, Sometimes I wouldn't tell myself we're working on the book. I would just be like, we're writing a scene or we're we're writing like a memory. And it was only really later that I started pulling everything together, thinking like about readers and what's important for them to know. But it was really meaningful, like to get to spend that time with my parents, to hear their voices again, mm-hmm. to have that space, like while grieving and knowing that if I could write, some part of me had to be doing a little bit better. I'd never written about something kind of while in the throes of it. My first book, All You Can Ever Know, I was writing about search and reunion with my birth family. And that had happened like years before I even thought about writing the book. And I won't say I regretted that time for various reasons. I really needed that time with that book. Uh, You spend your whole life basically getting ready to write the first book. And like you need that time. But it also, I remember, made it sometimes hard to access like memories or emotions and like there's there was no remove like there was no separation in this book between like what i was experiencing had experienced and and trying to like put that into words and there was something that was very like compelling and urgent and Im- important to me about the immediacy mm-hmm. right of this project it would be a completely different book if i'd waited 10 years and i don't know this was the book i needed to write right now yeah were there any other like i have some book DJ ideas of like works that I would compare this to, or that I think this has something in common with, but like, I'm curious to hear what your perspective is on like, who were the writers or works that inspired you as you were thinking about this? I mean, that's such a hard question. A part, part of it, as I said, of like why I wanted to write about particularly the circumstances of my father's death and the role that like financial precarity and and lack of healthcare access played is just because like 
I had been reading stories about grief and hadn't been seeing like the financial realities, the yeah. the practical realities, the what it means to have to try to have those discussions with people who are like very hesitant. Like, of course, no one wants to have these discussions with their elders. And yet, like at a certain point, that's all you can do is try to have these conversations so they can state their wishes and you can honor them. You know, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I wasn't seeing a lot of narratives like that. And it was one of the reasons why I wanted to to attempt it. But like, when I think about writers I was reading at the time, and again, I want to frame this in terms, it's not a pandemic book, but like I wrote it during the first year or two of the pandemic and I had a short attention span. I mean, I was reading a lot of like poetry and a lot of literary fiction, but like, I don't know, it was, there were a lot of novels actually that I read Mm. that were really helpful, like in thinking about how to write about grief, like Brian Washington's Memorial was one of them. Like I, let's see. I was reading like Ocean Vong, you know, mm. and I was reading just like poets who, even if they weren't always tackling the type of grief I was, were writing about loss and about the distance between expectations and reality in a way that felt really resonant to me, like at that point in the pandemic while my mom was sick. Cat Chow's Seeing Ghosts was a book that I happened yeah. to like, you know, read and then reread. I don't know that I would say any of these like were like direct influences in my writing, but they're all voices I admire and like love spending time with. And I found especially like reading different poets like Linda Paston, Ada Limon would help me get in a good frame of mind for writing. I would enter kind of this meditative state and I'm not saying I know what it's like to be a poet. I don't know how they do what they do. Uh, It is beyond me, but it really helped. It helped me to kind of get into the state I needed to be in to, um, access memories and give this book the attention it needed you know given the emotional terrain it just took a kind of focus and a kind of like emotional honesty and vulnerability I don't think I've ever had to give to that level you know in my writing before it was very daunting but it it was to some degree kind of the work I was reading that made it like possible to be in that state yeah there's a way in which it makes so much sense to me that you were leaning on these poets during this time like that resonates in the work and I actually I have a Linda Paston quote on my bulletin board that feels so appropriate to this moment I have to read it you must rock your pain in your arms until it's asleep then leave it in a darkened room and tiptoe out mm. <laughs> the late great Linda Paston oh it's from a poem called That's instruction nice. that I love Adrian I will let you get a word in edgewise now that I'm done quoting well, uh, I think I wanted to ask a little bit about the relationship to your first book. I mean, on, on two levels. One is, I mean, they're, they're definitely, I, for me, it was impossible to read this without thinking back to your first memoir, which likewise amazing. Some things reoccur, right? The way you talk about um, going East for college, yet another assimilation, right? The fact that like, the thought of being quote just another Asian girl, like it's actually really freeing coming from a place where you're the only Korean person and that like, now we get to sort of see the other side of that where like, you know, the parents who basically have to recognize that that's probably the right path for their child to to get into a place where some anonymity is possible. I think last time we met in person, you were touring with that book. And I could mm-hmm. I remember you sort of, you told me ahead of time what kind of questions we were going to get, and you called about ninety percent of them. Like that, that book, did I? <laughs> I think so. That that book really, like, there were always interesting questions. I thought that the Stanford audience had for you, but there were some where you kind of where I could tell you had gotten them about at every stop. And there's there's even a mention of it in this book where where your mom was there in in uh, somewhere <laughs> in Oregon and and speaks up and sort of answers in kind of a kind of a gruff way or it's kind of quick way. Uh, it's like it's to be done with the question, and and in some way. 
looking at that book, I feel like it makes sense to me why you would sort of get the same questions over and over. What's the the reaction been to this in terms of that? Like this feels more slippery in some way for, right? Like, th- th- like it doesn't sort of go into a groove where you sort of know what people are going to fasten on to. Like I, I really felt like I've, I've read twice now and I feel like I underlined very different things each time. So what's the, been, been the experience promoting this book? I really love events. And so I feel lucky to have gotten to, to have some with this book and to get to like hear from readers. And like, for me, there's no substitute for that. I mean, it's wonderful getting good reviews and it's wonderful seeing a book take hold or something on social media or whatever. I love doing interviews like this too, but like actually directly hearing from readers who are just encountering the book the way we all encounter literature, like looking for something that they might need and looking to, you know, be swept up in a story. Like, I love that. And I would say like, it is hard to generalize with this book, especially, but there are the people who read and respond and they're very much thinking about their own lives and losses. Mm -hmm. And of course that means a great deal to me. The whole reason that I think we write and read memoir is that it can be a a ground where you meet yourself as well. The point is really not to make everyone Mm. think about my life and what happened to me. Like the hope is always, it makes you think about what's happened to you and think about what's important to you. And in the case of this book, that includes like people you've loved and lost. I don't take that lightly. And it reminds me actually of like the many like adoptees who I've gotten the chance to hear from and talk with because of my first book it can be a lot to like hold and carry those stories to have people at events like cry and tell me like about their experience but I also know like what a privilege and an honor that is and I I guess I would say the other type of feedback I get does tend to be of a very political variety you know for lack of a better term and it's kind of funny because a group I won't name asked me to speak their organization for Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'm going to want to talk about like the recent book. It had just been published the month before. And I like, that's fine. I mean, just nothing explicitly political. And I was like, first of all, how are you inviting an Asian American to come talk for Asian American Heritage Month? <laughs> um, but also, like that, that in itself is a political decision. But then also saying, telling me to talk about this particular story. Again, it's not that I set out to lecture people or to write a polemic, but I don't see how you can look at this without like without talking about like the critiques of capitalism and like just what it means to to lose and grieve people, to get sick, to need things in these systems. There's no way to, to talk about the book without talking about like many of this country's just structural failings. In the end, I had to say, like, I'm sorry, I don't see any possible way any like one line description of the book would probably break this rule. Yeah. But like I, I've heard like really great, I think sometimes enraging, but like also like affirming stories from people, Mm. whether it's similar things that happened to people they've loved, or I've heard from activists and advocates. When I read at Powell's most recently for this book, there were many people there who were involved in advocating for Oregon healthcare for all. And they actually Mm. told me, uh, I did an interview with Oregon Public Broadcasting for the book, and it had been submitted as testimony in favor of this policy. So that was amazing. It was extremely meaningful to me. And so I, I mean, I don't shy away from like, I welcome these conversations. And I also think because again, I mentioned before, my mother and I were like politically so far apart, but very united on, on what happened to my father and and the causes really, Mm. uh, and the ways in which he and they both were, were failed by different 
like systems. And so I actually do think there is room, despite political and ideological difference, to recognize these systemic failings and to think and talk about like how they actually affect people. I don't actually think you have to like share my politics to get that from the story or to think about these things. Yeah. And then then it brings me back to the eternal question of like, how is it even political to believe that people should be cared for? (laughs) (laughs) That's another two hours of discussion. And you've been incredibly generous so far. Adrian, did you have anything else you wanted to wrap up with? Well, I mean, just that I, I think it's it's the it's a rare kind of memoir that can do all these things, right? That like, and I think that it really is it's just an astonishing book for that. It is political with every fiber of its of its being, every word of it, but also not, also just a kind of story about intergenerational relationships and mm-hmm. the way those are inevitably tragic and would have been no matter what would have been the case, but. That, you know, the very specific place and time where they happened really inflects the process of coming to terms with being the oldest generation, you know, now, uh, what that process is really like. I mean, we haven't even talked about the fact that, of course, you know, I I mean, I I don't know your part of Oregon that well, but, uh, you know, I'm guessing you mentioned at some point that the timber industry declined. I'm going to guess that the it's now the healthcare industry that is the leading industry in that area, right? So like there's also kind of a big American story here where we, you know, caring for others becomes kind of our main industry, but like at the same time, it becomes therefore big business and and people are sort of inevitably left out. If, if that's the only thing an area lives from, it, it better be very money-making, you know? And, mm-hmm. and there's something, to me, this was just like, it was this intimate, you brought us into this small Oregon house. And yet, you know, there's about 40 years of American history just packed into it. Well, I really appreciate you both um, just spending time with it. Uh, It means a lot, especially because we have, uh, I've also known and followed your work, both of you for some time. So, I mean, I just appreciate the invitation and the time you've spent. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much. I mean, I I don't know how I could thank you you for one thing, but like, thank you for this conversation. Thank you for this book. It was such a privilege to engage with. And we hope we get to talk to you on the next one. No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) I I would love that too. Thank you. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the institute named for a woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, Carolyn Asante Darty, and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by the Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences.